On this episode of AvTalk, we talk to pilot Maria Langer about what it's like to dry cherry trees with a helicopter. Also, the 737 MAX will stay grounded even longer, and Pakistan reopens its airspace to all commercial flights. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitzen. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. I am hot. How are you? Also hot. Also hot. I'm hugging my air conditioner today and for the foreseeable future. Yeah. We're supposed to get up to a heat index of 110 over the next two days. That's Fahrenheit. And I assume that's like 612 Celsius. That or, sounds or right. That like might that. be Kelvin. Kelvin, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. I believe it's 36 Celsius for those listeners who are anywhere but the, the US. It's and good. Burma. And yes, of course. It, it's hot here and it's hot there and it's humid and I don't like it. And no thank you, please. Have we gotten to the point, at least has Phoenix gotten to the point yet where they've had to limit flights because it's too damn hot this year? I don't know if they've gotten to that point yet because I actually think it's cooler there than it is here. That's not good. I know. But I think Vegas got there the other day, if I'm not mistaken, where where they went out weight restricted. So that's always, you know, not fun. But yeah, other than being hot, how are things? Things are good, I guess. It's, uh, we're not recording in the dead of night, so that's... Uh, <laughs> Good change for me. It's a big change and, and a welcome one. Yeah, I'm happy about that. We've yeah, got so things to talk about. We, we do have things to talk about. And we have a about. good guest lined up. We That we do. The best thing to do would be to go flying with, with our guest, but we'll we'll take second best, which, which is talk with her. A little bit later in the show, Maria Langer will join us, and she is a helicopter pilot in central Washington, and in this particular moment in time, she is busy drying cherries with her helicopter. So we're going to learn about how and why and all sorts of good things a little bit later in the show. But first, we have our, at this point, bi-weekly check-in on when the 737 MAX will fly again. And the date is again different. And the date is again later than the last time we mentioned a time. The answer is still, of course, we have no freaking idea. No one has any idea, but it's not going to be anytime soon. And the trend we're seeing more and more is that it's probably not even going to be in 2019. Even if the aircraft is recertified and okayed to fly sometime in 2019, by the time airlines are able to put it back into their schedule with any meaningful impact, it's going to be into 2020 at this point, which is kind of crazy. I don't think anyone really expected that when the aircraft was first grounded. American, for instance, was expecting to have the MAX back in time for the beginning of the summer peak season as a as a hot spare when it needed it. But now it, along with United, have pushed the reintroduction of the MAX in their schedule back to November. Yeah, I think the 2nd or the 3rd of November is where both of those airlines have, have put them. It's, yeah, American has gone to November 2nd. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's just the thing I keep coming back to is, is all of the the needed maintenance. I mean, for, forget the actual, you know, the software patch when it's all said and done and, and the updating of the computers and things like that. Just the physical maintenance on all of these aircraft just sitting there. It's got to be, I mean, who knows how much that's costing the airlines because they haven't really broken that out. And and it's been tough trying to, to pin any of the airlines down on how much things are costing them 
kind of broken out other than the grounding is costing us X or, or something like that. But it, it's just got to be ridiculously expensive. I think we've talked about this before, but just as a reminder, an airplane, a 737 is not a Ford Taurus. You can't put it in a parking lot, lock the doors and leave it there for six years. These aircraft, they have to be maintained. They have to be sealed for long-term storage. The fuel has to be monitored. The APU has to be run. Things have to be constantly monitored and checked so that when the okay to fly is finally in, they can get these things flying real quick and put them into service. You can't just leave it rotting away in a parking lot somewhere. No, I mean, not necessarily rotting away in a parking lot, but they are, you know, they are certainly sitting around. The two airlines, at least, that, that we know of have made some changes to their marketing of the aircraft in certain ways. Ryanair has now, they repainted the nose of, of their first MAX to, it no longer says 737 MAX, it just says 737-8200, uh, which is their special, how do to use the parlance of the industry, enhanced configuration? Sure. Enhanced, bone-crushing, terrible, really dense version of it. Will that work? Yeah, that, that'll work. Okay. So they've repainted that, and that was last week, I believe, that, that that kind of broke cover. And then Goal, on their website, on the Portuguese version of their website, has renamed that, the aircraft from the 737 MAX 8, to just the 737-8. The English website retains the the max title, so I'm for not now. sure. For, I mean, for now, so who who knows what could happen? But but Ryanair has also said they're not going to market it differently. They just happened to have repainted an aircraft they had already painted with a new now, sign. Was this one but, repainted, or did this one roll off the factory line with this new paint? My understanding is that they repainted the nose, but I could be wrong. It, I it, it think could have rolled this off. One came out of the factory fresh okay. with this with this new paint. Either way, it's different than what was originally either on the first one or, or there. And so we'll see what happens as far as other airlines. And like we talked about before, there's what's, I guess, greater than speculation, but without really hard confirmation of the date yet about you know a, a change coming into to what the aircraft is is marketed as not necessarily called because officially the title of the aircraft is just the 737-8-9-10-7-8200 if you're Ryanair if if you're Ryanair but we'll see how the marketing changes uh, which i think yeah, is I mean, at this point I, probably more important yeah if you change the name on the nose of the airplane and the safety card and on the booking path from 737 MAX to 737-8, passengers are going to have no idea that this aircraft was once upon a time named the MAX and grounded. I think any airline that operates the MAX in the past, present, or future would be smart to ditch the MAX branding. I think at this point, it's toxic, not only the, the legacy of what has happened with these crashes, but Boeing's response to it was, let's say, lackluster in many, in many ways to the point where people ask me about the MAX that I never would have expected to even know what the MAX is. That The name is tainted forever in my mind. And I, I don't think Boeing can possibly forge ahead keeping that name. Since as you said, Ian, it's really just a marketing name. The real name of the aircraft is a 737-8, 9, 7, 10. 
Max is all marketing, and why would they continue marketing an aircraft with an absolutely tainted, toxic name? Yeah, and, and but I think it expands on that because I was I was booking flights for something that we're going to to discuss in an episode in the very end of the summer that we'll get into more in a future episode. But I was booking flights for that, and that's going to be on a seven three. One of the flights is going to be a seven three seven eight hundred to get it to get where we need to go. And I mentioned that to my wife, not because it was a 737-800, but because American Airlines helpfully notes that it's the passenger configuration of the 737-800. Oh, well, I'm great. I'm <laughs> grateful it's not the 737-800 passenger to freight conversion version. I mean, it, it, maybe I, I have been known to write a pallet or two, but I, I, was, I, I was very confused why it was listed. And so I pointed that out to her and she goes, well, aren't they grounded? Ugh, and I was yeah. like, so... No, <laughs> but I mean, for her, for her to say that to me, I was like, well, okay, th- this problem. I mean, and I'm sure this is a problem that that airlines and and Boeing realize they have. I mean, they're not. I mean, I don't think they're deaf to this. And, and so I, I think that it'll be interesting to see who and when things change as far as the marketing goes. Yeah, we'll see. Once again, we have no idea when this will be flying. One of my flights in the future, actually, for October was supposed to be on an American 737-800NG, and that route was actually canceled entirely due to Americans' fleet being stretched so thin. So my flight uh, became went from a nonstop Seattle to JFK to an impossible one-stop connection at O'Hare, and I just had to end up canceling the flight entirely and rebooking on another airline. So these impacts are stretching well into the fall and winter at this point. Yeah. Yeah, and and so speaking of impacts, United's taking a, a bunch of seven three seven seven hundreds to kind of backfill. We think we don't know if how long this purchase of twenty. I'm going to say I'm going to round up to twenty seven thirty seven seven hundreds used. Of course, they're they're not really making any new seven hundreds. These deals don't happen quickly. So I and they're not taking the first aircraft I think until November and only then it's it's only one aircraft for now. This could have been in the works for years or months or or weeks. I don't think it's a knee jerk reaction to 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 get more aircraft in the fleet right now. But if it is, that's pretty impressive. It's nineteen, maybe twenty seven three seven seven hundreds used. We don't know where from just yet. But how many fleets out there even have? 737 700s to, to take from. To spare. Yeah. And, and well, and the interesting thing, and I'm not interesting, but a bit of context here is that United is no stranger to taking aircraft from another airline and, you know, and putting them back in, into service. They've taken some, I think, China Southern A319 or A320s. Yeah, three nineteens, Copa seven thirty seven seven hundred. That they didn't really even have to repaint, and I think seven six sevens from Hawaiian. So I mean, yep. th- th- this isn't out of character for you. No, it's a move out of the Delta playbook. I mean, yeah, there is that. I mean, <laughs> except they're not seven one sevens or MD nineties or or some weird McDonnell Douglas variant. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a there's a special place in the Delta heart for McDonnell Douglas derived. Aircraft for now. Well, speaking of that, they announced this week during their investor call that they're accelerating the retirement of the MD nineties. Actually, I think twenty twenty one was it. I I missed exactly when, but I I saw that the, it was getting uh, getting sped up. 
Yeah. So the 717s stay around for the foreseeable future, but the MD-90s, which are a fairly rare breed, are going to be exiting the fleet within the next few years. So there you go. If for some reason that is your aircraft type of choice, uh, get flying. <laughs> so in news today, on a, I guess, a similar vein as far as the, the 737 MAX is concerned, Airbus issued a revision to the A321neo flight manuals because there's a concern of excessive pitch that that occurs under certain conditions and during specific maneuvers that can result in reduced control of the aircraft. These are very vague terms, aren't they? The, I think that this was uh, intentionally vague, but it covers all 321neos, both the CFM Leaps and the, the Pratt & Whitney engines. So it's... Uh, Airbus has issued uh, some updates to the flight manual and and will follow along with uh, the European Aviation Safety Agency if if they issue anything else like that. But that's all we know so far. It's extremely vague, but interesting to to follow along with. Yeah. So always good to remember, it's definitely not just Boeing that experiences issues like this. It's every airframer at some point has weird, excessive pitch issues during certain specific maneuvers. At least they identified it, whatever that might be, that could lead to reduced control and uh, get that resolved, I hope. I bet they will. So the other big news this week is that Pakistan's airspace is finally unconditionally, unrestrictedly available for commercial flights. Hooray! Finally! This began on the 27th of February and lasted until the 15th of July. So it moved a lot of traffic around, and in the intervening time, the tensions between the U.S. and Iran and the FAA's prohibition on certain flights in certain portions of Iranian airspace led to even further shifting of flights, and now things are kind of moving back. Uh, so it, it's it's one of those things where you know some flights were being affected to the tune of you know 20 30 minutes over the course of a, a 10 or 11 hour flight some flights were being affected to the tune of what used to be an hour flight was now a 6 hour flight and some flights were eliminated outright united Entirely. had yeah. to uh, suspend its both its routes out of newark to india and i think mere hours before the airspace reopened united extended that uh, route cancellation. So, uh, and I believe they have since unextended it. Yes. So, so they're back to I think September first is when they'll restart that route. Yeah, but it, it seemed so sudden when the flight, uh, when when the airspace reopened, that flights already in route expecting to have to go around were suddenly rerouted and allowed through yeah. their airspace. It was very sudden. We'll uh, we'll we'll take what we can get. I guess was the the idea behind that because I mean some flights had really been just you know sent out of their way and and I posted something the other day about you know how Thai Airways was just kind of it the the location where Bangkok is relative to to Western Europe just made them kind of the, the perfect put them in in, in the perfect spot to be affected the most well Thai was that one flight early on that kind of made uh circles for like an hour over the middle of the uh sea wasn't it 
Oh, well, yeah, that, but that was their flight to or, or from Karachi that was trying to leave and got pushed into, they couldn't enter Indian airspace from Pakistan and they couldn't get permission to go into Iran, I think it was. And so they had to figure out what they were doing on the fly. So they gave them a, you know, turn left. And so they turned left for a while and then, then they figured it out. But but their flights to and from to and from Europe to, to, to Bangkok were were really affected because the the perfect line sends them through India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. And you had, you know, multi-hour reroutes taking place. Uh, their first solution was to go the northern route, so fly, you know, north into you know China, Russia, and, and, and go that way. And that apparently they only did that for a few days, and, and it didn't work for them very well. So then they ended up going the southern route, which they stuck with for for the duration of, of the airspace restrictions. But now they're back to to what they had been flying before March, when the airspace was unrestricted. Just a fascinating kind of microcosm of, of things that snowballed to really affect a whole bunch of airlines. Yep. Last week, the big news as far as airline leadership goes is that Norwegian's CEO, Bjorn Schuss, is he left. Where'd he go? After he he just left. He oh. he's he got on a Norwegian flight and left. Was he, he, on he time? retired? He, he he was delayed and he actually ended up on a high fly A340, but that's oh, not the point. Isn't it though? So the CFO is now the interim CEO while they look for one. Jason's got his resume in and is going to try try for that position. But you know, Schoss was one of the uh the founders and uh, he was the CEO for 17 years. Uh, and really, you know, kind of grew Norwegian into what it is today, and so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens then. Yeah, Norwegian. Uh, the last few years hasn't been super great, and it's not really all that much their fault in many respects. The um, seven eight seven engine issues and late deliveries really, really screwed over Norwegians' long haul ambitions. Over the last few years, but I found it kind of funny that I got two emails one minute apart. The first email at 3 a.m. on Thursday, Norwegian's financial turnaround moves in the right direction. Literally one minute later, 3.01 a.m., Norwegian CEO steps down. Um, so <laughs> those are very, very contrasting emails to get one minute apart. Yeah. We're doing great. Our CEO has left. Yes. Wait, what? Going out on a high note, I guess. Yeah, sure. So it'll be interesting to see what happens given what a fixture he was at the airline and the fact that he had been CEO for so long. So there's some speculation. I'm not sure how much I buy into this, but but perhaps a new CEO will be more amenable to a takeover bid from another another airline or another group of I airlines. remember that IAG or, or British Airways tried uh, almost tried a hostile takeover last year. Right. It was not very successful. And and so we'll see if that comes around again. And if another airline group says, maybe it's our turn. So we'll see what happens to Norwegian in the interim. Shall we take a quick break and come back for a conversation with Marilia Langer and talk about some cherry drying with a helicopter? We should. We should definitely do that. All right. So let's do that. Stay with us. And we'll be right back after a short break.
Welcome back. We're now joined by Maria Langer, who is a helicopter pilot and single seat part 135 operator out of central Washington. And she does some fascinating things that we're about to hear about. So Maria, welcome to AvTalk. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for asking me. Welcome, Maria. So you are a helicopter pilot, which is is actually uh, I think you're the first you're the first person who who flies helicopters only professionally that we've had on the program. So we're we're in a, a day of firsts here. But you do something with your helicopter that I find fascinating. You don't just fly your helicopter; your helicopter is your tool as well. And I would love to hear more about what it is you do. Okay. Well, you, I think you're referring to my cherry drying activities. I, I am indeed. Out of context, and, uh, that's very strange. Me, we call it cherry drying. The uh, people who hire us sometimes call it cherry blowing. What it's all about is this. Cherry trees, the cherries are developing on the trees. During the last three to five weeks of the cherry development, if they get wet, they can absorb the water through their skins, which causes them to expand and split the skins. So basically, rain will cause the cherries to split. And once the cherries split, the growers can't sell them. And since they can't sell them, they want to prevent that every way they can. So a long time ago, way before my time, I've been doing this for 12 years, and it's been going on for at least another 10 or 15 before me. They decided that helicopters are like giant fans. And if they were to hire helicopter pilots to stand by and then have us come out over and hover basically fly really low and slow over the treetops after it rains, we would shake the branches and shake the fruit and get the water out of the trees and off the fruit so that they can dry. And that's basically what I've been doing since 2008. I used to live in Arizona and I would come up to Washington State for the summer. Uh, now I live up here full time so I don't have to go anywhere. And I stand by and I wait. And when it rains, they call and I, I go out and fly. And I have a bunch of guys that work with me so we do it together as a team. So are you doing kind of one helicopter per orchard or is it like a concerted kind of, you know, synchronized helicoptering over a single orchard? <laughs> Sometimes it's, uh, it's it goes either way. It depends on how many calls we get and how many of us are available. A lot of times when we're called out after a rain event, uh, we'll each go to a different orchard and then we'll later, some of us will meet up at another orchard and you know, you take these blocks and I'll take those blocks and, and then we work together to dry them. My goal is to get the cherries, the fruit dried as quickly as possible. Um, and that's what my growers like. And they love it when they see two helicopters over their orchard at the same time. So we, we kind of score a lot of points when we can do that. But it depends on how many people call. We uh, have multiple orchards on contract and uh, more orchards than pilots right now. So it's not always as quick as they'd like, but uh, we usually get all the fruit dried within two hours. So how exactly does this work? Do you draw up a sort of plan of attack before you head out? What altitude do you do this at? Or have you just done some of these orchards so many times that you know them so <laughs> precisely that you just get the call and you, you go do your thing? That is pretty much me. Like I said, I've been doing it for 12 years and a lot of my clients I've had for Oh gosh, is one of them I've been working with for, for 12 years. Uh, but most of them are in the past, oh, I say about seven to eight years. I, my clients have me come back every year, which is great. Basically, when the guys come to work for me, I give them a rundown of what I expect. We fly generally five to 10 feet off the tops of the cherry trees. 
and we fly generally five to 10 uh, miles an hour knots. And of course, you don't read that on your airspeed indicator. You need to read that on your GPS because uh, you're going really slow. And Rainier cherries, which are the, the lighter colored ones, they have thinner skins and they show bruising a lot easier. So we have to fly higher over those and sometimes faster. You know, the whole form, that's the main formula. The formula changes if they're uh, very, very wet or the trees are very dense or maybe the trees aren't as dense. Maybe they're not as old. We can do it faster or higher or whatever. So I just basically give them the basics and then we go from there. We each get, I make up a book that has in it maps of the orchards and the maps have, the orchards are set up out in blocks, um, like a a couple of acres, you know, five, 10, maybe something larger acres of trees all grouped together and with roads that go around them to kind of mark the edges. And a lot of times there's different varieties of cherries in each block. And uh, sometimes they'll want us to dry the skinas, but not the sweethearts. And you have to know what everything is. So we all have these maps and I'm able to launch the guys and myself uh, based on what the client wants. So a client might call and say, uh, I want you to go to ATM Hill Bottom. That's basically an orchard and it corresponds to a map. And he'll say and dry blocks 22, 24, and 27. So I'll either do it, go do that myself or I'll call up one of my guys and say, this is what you got to do. And so we're all on the same page. And, you know, maybe he's doing those three blocks and I get done early and he's not started on the third one yet. And maybe I'll come in and help him and we'll get it done quicker. So that's basically what we do. That's pretty remarkable. I have to say that you're doing it that low and that slow. So yeah. <laughs> let's say I'm an orchard that has not used your services at any point and you agree to, to dry these cherry fields. Do you first have to go out there and do like a ground survey to look for any obstructions, power lines, light posts, anything like that? You know, it's, it is always good to check them out from the ground. And I like to check them out from the ground. I try to do it and I try to encourage the guys who work for me to do it. And I, honestly, I used to take them around on their first day in my Jeep and show them around and it would take all day long and it would be mind numbing the amount of information they had to suck in on that first day. Uh, so nowadays I just give them the maps and uh, the other thing that I provide for them is I go on to Google Maps and I draw outlines of all the orchard blocks uh, that uh, correspond to the different places that we might have to dry and I name them. And then I save that file, that GPS file in a format that can be read by ForeFlight so we all loaded up onto ForeFlight so we can have ForeFlight running with uh, like an aerial photo view. And that would, um, they'd be able to see the boundaries of the orchards that way as well. So I encourage them to go out and, and to do, you know, to do that basically on their own. That's pretty remarkable. So you're taking, I guess you would, you would say civilian level aerial sur surveys of the area, just satellite imagery from Google Earth. And then uh, from Google Maps and then importing that into ForeFlight so you know exactly where you have to go right there right. in your avionics suite. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it works out pretty well. So I, I have to imagine that there's a lot of kind of specialized maneuvering that goes into operating in such close... Is there specialized training required or, or is it one of those things where if you've flown a certain type of flying beforehand, you're, you're a little bit better at it or is it just kind of this is its own thing and, and you just have to do it and, and practice and practice and practice? You know, for a helicopter pilot, it really isn't anything special. It does require a good level of skills 
and you know mostly hovering skills and being able to control the helicopter maybe with a crosswind or a tailwind but there is no special training required by the FAA this is a part 91 operation no special certification the guys that come to work with me i require them to have at least 500 hours in helicopters and at least 100 hours in type which is normally going to be an R44 uh, that's really what i prefer for this kind of work so other than that, I mean, if they can't do it, they you know they can't do it. But if you're a 500-hour helicopter pilot, you should have the hovering skills that you need to get down uh, into the trees and and get the job done and avoid obstacles. The obstacles are the main thing. So, so you say that you prefer an R44 for for this particular type of flying. Is there any reason behind that, or? Yeah, the the main reason is that it pushes a lot of air. An R-22 would definitely not be able to do it. A little Schweitzer would probably not be able to do it. So the the size is one thing. And then there are other helicopters the same size, like a Jet Ranger is about the same size. An R-66 is the same size. But all of these helicopters are more expensive to operate. So the R-44 gives you the most bang for your buck. And what I like about it is that they're interchangeable. It's easier for me to do billing. Uh, there's a lot of, you know... Just it's easier for me just to work with R44s, so that's what I prefer. So if we we found somebody who who had I don't even know like a like an AS350 and and kind of threw them in there, that that just wouldn't work for you. No, it, I mean it would work for me, but the question is, would it work for them? I'm not sure how much a helicopter that size could dry. I'm assuming it could dry more, but I know it would cost more, so I'd want it to dry more. I'd want it to count as maybe two R44s if I have to pay them twice as much. Gotcha. You see what I mean? No, no, yeah, yeah. Because if yeah, the client's not going to want to pay extra for a helicopter that doesn't give them uh, the same coverage, or, you know, or extra coverage, I should say. Sure, sure. So this is, I mean, for the cherry drying, cherry. I, I assume that the latter half of the, the cherry season is the cherry drying season. What happens the rest of the year? For the cherries or for me? For, for, for you. <laughs> the, the, cherry, the cherries uh, well, get ever, trucked uh, to me and I eat all of them. That's what yes, happens to that's the cherries. Right. Yep. Well, once the cherry season's over and it looks like my season should be over around uh, August 6th this year. That's when my last contract ends, unless they extend. A lot of guys have been extending because the season slowed down. Then what I just do is the my usual stuff. I actually don't fly that much in the off-season. I do some charter work with my single pilot Part 135 certificate, and I also do rides occasionally at events, but I'm trying not to do too much of that. And I've been doing a lot more pleasure flights uh, than I used to do. Of course, a long time ago, I used to do a lot of pleasure flights. Now I, I stopped doing that, and now I'm doing it again. So, and then in the winter, I go away for the winter. It's too dreary here. I go south for the winter and I leave the helicopter behind. There you go. So the other thing that you're doing, which we shared on the Flight Radar uh, 24 social media channels the other day, was uh, you're developing a YouTube channel kind of explaining the video that we shared was was going through the instrumentation of the R44, which mm -hmm. I found fascinating because like I said, we, we don't get to talk to a lot of helicopter pilots. And normally, Jason and I are generally focused on fixed wing commercial aviation. And so this was a real kind of different turn for me. And I found that really mm -hmm. interesting. And and that's another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, what was what you're developing on YouTube and, and kind of what you've done already and, and where you're going with the channel. Okay. Well, the channel was started actually a long time ago. I think the earliest videos like 11 or 12 years ago. And they weren't very good back then. Uh, they were mostly promotional to push my business when I was based in Arizona. 
So there's a lot of, you know, scenery of Sedona and scenery from other flights that I used to do. They're, they're actually not very good videos. And since then, I had done a video. I, I was keeping my helicopter at home. And I had done a video kind of on a whim where I put the camera pointing out the front window. Uh, you could see the back of me and you could see out my front window. And I flew from my home to the airport and I just put that out there and I didn't really think much of it. And uh, about two, three years went by and all of a sudden it went viral to the tune of like 8 million views, which is outrageous. And then I started thinking, you know, maybe I should be doing some more of this. So I started getting more involved with doing uh, point of view videos like that. And since then, I've actually started working more with two cameras. I've got another one in there about the flying with the mustache kid, which was a ride that I did at an event with a, kind of like a little smart alecky kid with me. And he's a lot of fun to listen to. He's, I think he was like seven years old. He's really a lot of fun. Um, and that one also got a lot of hits. And people, I realized that people wanted to see they wanted to see what I see. They wanted to see what I take for granted all the time. I get in the helicopter, you know, buckle up, start it up, and I fly away. And I don't really think too much about it. For me, it really is like driving a car. But people, I forget that people really don't have these experiences. So they really liked what I was doing. So I decided to to expand on it and do more. And I'm uh, at this point, I'm I've gotten very serious about it. I'm trying to drop a point of view. I call them come fly with me video. I try to drop one of those every Sunday. And then in the middle of the week, I try to drop something I call an extra, which is not inside the cockpit necessarily like that, that panel overview. That was uh, an extra. There's one that came out today, which shows how my helicopter is fueled. Again, something, I mean, it's hundreds or thousands of times. I've been involved in the refueling of my helicopter, never think twice about it, but some folks actually asked, what is it like? How does it work? So I did a little video about that and, and people are watching it and commenting and it's kind of cool because it's making me realize that the stuff that I take for granted is, is kind of special and I should share it and I should open up people's worlds. I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I'm able to do what I do. The vast majority of people will not be able to do it, but why can't I show it to them, you know, without a lot of hype and without a lot of macho or anything like that? I'm just, you know, this is what I do. Ask me questions. I'll try to answer them. And that's, that's what it's all about. I was uh, kind of going through the the list the other day, and and I started with the the panel video that you posted last week, and then kind of watched some of the the cherry drying videos and things like that, and and just I guess if you've been doing it for twelve years, it, it seems normal. It's your job and things like that. But for those of us who who it's not their job, I was like, this this is amazing. Yeah, it's weird. Why why would you do that? Yeah, it's it's weird. They use helicopters to dry. You hear stories every once in a while about them drawing a softball field or a football field. Um, it's the same idea. They're just moving the air around to to make it um, to dry it off. They also use helicopters for frost control, uh, mostly in California over almond trees in like February, March, and then also in California and Florida over citrus trees. Uh, various times of the year. And in that case, they're flying higher, they're flying faster. And what they're doing is they're sucking the air from up above down into the trees to circulate the air and to prevent frost. And that's another weird helicopter use, very similar to this, but not quite as intense because you're, well, it's intense because you're flying at night, which is pretty intense. But so we don't fly at night for cherries. That was going to be my next question. Do, do you ever fly at 
What's the kind of weather boundaries as, as far as cherry drying goes? We fly when they call us, and occasionally we have had to fly very close to thunderstorms just to get to the orchard. Yesterday when we were flying, there was a lot of wind. The wind was really localized, though, so one orchard on one side of the canyon had a ton of wind. The guy just absolutely couldn't dry it. He couldn't He couldn't work it because he couldn't maintain control. Uh, but yet on the other side of the canyon, this block of trees is not showing any wind, while that block of trees is just moving like we would be moving it. So wind is definitely one of the things. Rain on the windscreen can be a pain. Sometimes when it's raining all day, they'll have us go out and blow the cherries in the rain so that they, the water doesn't accumulate in what's called the stem bowl. The stem bowl is where the stem goes into the top of the cherry. They don't want water accumulating in there. So if it's raining all day, they'll send us out in the rain. And when you're flying at you know five to 10 knots, the wind is not blowing that rain off. And we don't have you know, windshield wipers. So visibility can sometimes get a little iffy, which is never good when you're five, ten, five feet off the top of a tree. But so those are the, the challenging things. The thunderstorms are probably the worst when we have to fly close to those. Do, do you ever end up with your head outside the window kind of? You know? <laughs> Boy, maybe once or twice, you know, my new helicopter fortunately has uh, air conditioning, which really comes into play because a lot of times you'll take off and it'll be a miserable, you know, rainy, time. But as you're out there drying, the sun comes out and now it's beating into the cockpit and there's no airflow to to stop the heat. So you're just sweating your brains out. And uh, I used to fly with the door off and occasionally I would stick my head out. Uh, but now I don't have to do that. Ace so. Ventura style, but in the air. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it gets really bad, you can always lift up off the trees, accelerate to, I don't know, 80 or 100 knots, the water will come off and then just get back down, take off, take up where you left off, I should say. Well, so, I see uh, helicopters all day, every day out by my office here in Manhattan, but I think their mission is a little bit different than yours. Before we let you go, I just have one question. At this point, okay. 12 years into drying cherries, do you know just as much about cherries as, as the, the growers? <laughs> That's a really funny question because just the other day, the client I've been working for for the whole 12 years called me to ask me about different techniques for drying cherries because he always wants it done a certain way. And he started thinking that maybe his way isn't the right way. And he was basically asking me how everybody else does it. How, how do the other growers ask you to fly? And so I found that that was very interesting. I know a startling amount about cherries, which is uh, always amazes me because um, they will talk to me about the fruit. And I mean, different varieties are more susceptible to splitting than other varieties. Uh, this year, I learned about something called bum splits, B-U-M. Th those like, are the um, worst kind of splits. The bum splits, yes. Well, the bum splits are um, splits that happen at the bottom of the cherry, not at the top by the stem cup. And they're caused by the tree just taking in so much water and pumping it into the cherry through the stem that the cherry splits at the bottom. And that's not something I can do anything about. That's got something to do with either their irrigation not being set up right or, uh, but, you know, so it doesn't really affect me, but still I know about it now, which is kind of weird. So if you're and sitting, you and now we do too. And, and if you're sitting there enjoying some Washington cherries, as I was earlier today, I now uh -huh. have a much greater appreciation for, for how those get into the grocery store so, so that I can, you know, chew on Let them. me just tell you. 
one more thing about that, because a lot of the people who watch the videos and comment on them, they say, oh, no wonder cherries are so expensive. And I have to tell you that the cost of having the helicopters over work on the cherries, uh, which is not cheap, is not the most expensive part of growing the cherries. I had one grower tell me that birds cost more than I do. And what he was referring to is the fact that when birds get into the orchard and they start pecking on cherries, one bird peck and that cherry gets thrown away. So if birds get in there and they eat up a lot of the cherries, that's less for him to harvest. So he says that birds cost him more than me. And you also have to remember that the trees are being taken care of almost year round. I mean, they're pruned, they're fertilized, they're uh, treated for pests, they're irrigated, of course. Uh, They've got guys that go around and turn the irrigation on and off. It's really labor intensive. Uh, So it's not me that's making them expensive. And as for the other comment that they always make is about um, helicopter exhaust on the cherries. The cherries get washed before they go to the stores. I'm not saying you shouldn't wash them again, but they don't need to worry about exhaust on them. So that's it about cherries. I have learned more about helicopter flying and cherries than I ever thought I would in mm. one day. So so thank you so much for, <laughs> for talking with us. Thank you for asking. L- let us know where folks can find you on the internet. Okay. First, my uh, YouTube channel is called Flying M Air, F-L-Y-I-N-G-M for Maria, Air, A-I-R, all one word, of course, YouTube channel. So look for me there and watch a couple of videos and subscribe. I'm also on Twitter, M Langer, M-L-A-N-G-E-R. And I've been on Twitter since 2007, which is longer than I've been drawing cherries. Well, there you go. And also, I just want to mention one more thing. I also keep a blog since 2003. You could find it the easy way is marialanger.com. So we have enjoyed both Helicopter Talk and Cherry Talk with Marie Langer, who is a helicopter pilot in Washington State who who spends this particular season drying cherries. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Welcome back. Jason, I now have a a brand new appreciation for the consumption of cherries. And in the short break after our conversation, I went and grabbed a whole bunch of them. Uh, So now I'm going to eat an entire bag of rainier cherries. Rainier cherries grown in Washington and possibly dried by Maria. Who would Uh, have ever guessed? I expected to learn a lot about helicopter flying, which I did. I did not expect to learn so much about cherries. (laughs) Oh, it's uh, uh, hazards of the job, I guess. I mean, the, 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 I mean, it's just you know, you never want to bum split. <laughs> you just don't. No, you just don't. No, no, no. That's not good for anyone. So, <laughs> let's go around the world in forty-six hours with the uh, the one more orbit folks who set a a new world circumnavigation record over the poles for for how, how fast they did it. And they were trying to beat 48 hours. They did it in a little bit over 46 hours. They took off at the NASA shuttle landing facility, or, which I think has been renamed to the Space Launch and Landing Facility because NASA isn't the only one using it these days, in Florida. And they flew over the North Pole to Kazakhstan. Then they flew down to Mauritius. Then from Mauritius, they went over the South Pole, flew south over the South Pole, came back up 
to Punta Arenas, and then they flew back to Florida. So four four flights, three stops, and forty six hours. Good for them. I say no thanks. Yeah, I cool. I guess I I don't have really much of a response to this other than that they were celebrating the the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 by flying around in a plane I, I didn't really understand it I, I, I couldn't it's care one of those things this. that it's one of those things that you don't have to understand it you just have to watch it and and say okay cool Qatar good yeah. good for you so I happy. mean it, it was an interesting thing to follow along with purely from a you know how it gets done perspective which I thought was pretty interesting. But the the other thing that I thought was very interesting as far as you know space was concerned last week was the Virgin Orbit completed their first drop test. That's of much their launcher more our speed. Yeah, and, and what was really cool is so the for those not up to up to speed on on orbital launch vehicles and things like that. Virgin Orbit's idea is not new. I mean, Orbital ATK did this with, or does this with their their Pegasus rocket off the the last flying L-1011. So Virgin Orbit has a former Virgin Atlantic 747 that they've modified. They put a pylon between the engine number two and the fuselage of the aircraft. They mount a big rocket there. They fly up to altitude. They make a turn, they climb a little bit, they make a turn, they launch the rocket, the rocket goes up into space and satellite gets you know, sent into space. So what's really neat is that you can follow the actual launch, or in this case, the, the drop of the rocket because they didn't actually launch anything, um, by seeing when they perform the climb and turn maneuver uh, in the ADS-B signal. So I thought that was really neat. Yeah. When you had first told me that I mistakenly thought you meant that the the rocket had ADSB and that would have been really cool to, to watch that there's just always hope there's blast always off ho- into space <laughs> I, I honestly have no idea what would happen if you put ADSB transponder on a rocket but one day I hope to find well, out I mean we know that the signal can be picked up way up there the, the loon the google loon balloons Frequently report at what, like sixty thousand? Yeah, I, plus I don't think feet. the altitude is. I, I think the the speed would be the limiting factor. I mean, we've run into that with like the the MLAT tracking. What is it, Virgin Galactic Spaceship Two with MLAT? Is because the the MLAT it's you know the the speed is calculated and the calculations built for commercial aircraft, not a rocket ship. So it kind of gets thrown off a little bit there. Uh, but with ADSB, I I honestly don't know what would happen. If yeah. You so if you're listening from Virgin Orbit, please outfit your rockets with ADSB. There you go. So let's kind of work our way through uh, some interesting bits of news that happened uh, this weekend. Last the, the first being uh, always wear your seatbelt. When you are flying on an aircraft, always, 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 even if it's not bumpy, especially when it's not bumpy, because 35 people on their way from uh, Vancouver to Sydney ended up in the hospital with varying degrees of injuries because of turbulence that an Air Canada flight encountered passing, uh, I guess, just southwest of Hawaii. They were on their way to Sydney from Vancouver. They turned around southwest of Hawaii and landed in Honolulu so that the 35 folks could get medical treatment. But always wear your seatbelt. Yeah, I think there was also an Emirates A380 this past week that had uh, a similar incident, but I, I don't understand why people would not just wear their seatbelt. I mean, if it's unfortunate if you happen to be going to the lab or whatever when turbulence hits. Um, sucks for you, I guess, but if you are in your seat, wear your damn seatbelt and 
along with that when you're taking off for landing, keep your damn shoes on. That's something people don't do either. I keep my shoes on for, well, probably depending on how long the flight is, just the whole flight. But if it's like an ultra long haul flight, yeah, definitely until we get well into the air. Yeah. The last thing you want to be doing is running around uh, the tarmac or, or the grass between runways without shoes on. Yeah. Yeah. That that too. And wear your seatbelt. Keep your shoes on during important and, and you know critical phases of flight. And, and eat your vegetables. And eat your vegetables. And and now anyone listening to the podcast can please get off my lawn. What else happened last week? Oh, uh, Delta 1425. Oh, yeah. That happened. Had an engine issue. Uh, issue is a soft way of putting it. Turns out that when you put the engines at the window level, you can get really good video when the engine breaks. Until the flight attendant snatches the phone out of your hands because it's interfering with the aircraft systems or some such nonsense. But the one person that did still have their phone captured some pretty remarkable video of um, an MD-80 from Delta experiencing a contained engine failure, thankfully contained engine failure. Because as you mentioned, the engines on a mad dog are at eye level and there have been incidents in the past with uncontained engine failures where things happen and engine parts end up inside the fuselage and bad things happen. But it looked like the little, um, I guess, the nose cone or tip or or what do you call that? The, The rubber piece or whatever it is at the front of the engine came off. And was just kind of jiggling around in there. Yeah, jiggling's a good word. It was jiggling. Yeah. And the piece where it would have normally been connected was glowing red fire hot, which just looked utterly frightening. They landed safely. Of course. D- diverted to, uh, to was it RDU? I think so. Um, yep. And everybody was fine. Uh, no injuries were reported. So folks on the aircraft, hopefully the guy who had his phone snatched away got it back. From the I hope guy. so, yeah. But every, everything everything went well. For those interested in where to sit in case of a crash, KLM India tweeted out some very helpful information today. Yeah, if you sit in the back, you're probably not going to die during a crash, maybe. Uh, we don't know. Um, I, I get yeah. where they were going with this, I but think. Why? But why would you tweet that out as an airline? I don't know. And then they went on and defended it by saying, well, they eventually deleted it, but then they defended it and they're like, yeah, well, we we thought it was interesting or what their exact I words agree. were. I uh, agree. It, it was very interesting. Their exact words they were, would we that. would like to sincerely apologize for a recent update. The post was based on publicly available aviation fact and isn't a KLM opinion. It was never our intention to hurt anyone's sentiments. The post has since been deleted. Yeah, but I don't even fathom. I, I can't understand what someone at Kalem's India's social media team was thinking. Like, you know what would be a good tweet? Where to sit to not die if one of our planes crashes? What? That would be something that I would expect from like a like an aviation safety publication or or perhaps some sort of like fact Yeah, let me just read off the tweet so you can see just how egregious this was. And quote, according to data studies by time, the fatality rate for the seats in the middle of the plane is the highest. However, the fatality rate for the seats in the front is marginally lesser and is less for seats at the rear third of the plane. Hashtag Tuesday trivia, hashtag aircraft, hashtag facts, hashtag aircraft. 
So yeah, um, I mean, it's not even a well-written tweet at that. The the whole thing was very, very And there's strange. an image that goes along with it. It's a nice floating seat in a cloud that says in big, bold letters, seats at the back of the plane are the safest, exclamation point. What? Is, <laughs> Somebody it, needs were they rolling out like train. were they going to start charging more for the safest seat in the airplane? I mean, maybe they do charge extra for seats at the front because they're extra legroom seats. So um, if you don't want to die, you better pay up seventy bucks for economy comfort. So yeah, I <laughs> I, I, I don't understand. I don't even understand why they would do that. Okay, two, two, three more things. First thing is A three forties. They struggle to get off the runway sometimes. Yeah, well, to, to be clear, the the a340 300 300 the yes. ones that are powered by hair dryers underpowered hair dryers yes yeah so go ahead and explain how this relates to to anything okay please well uh <laughs> bogota colombia is very hot it is very high and aircraft have difficulties taking off in hot and high conditions in this case the uh a340 300 had some published specifications on from Airbus on how pilots, how far back pilots should rotate the, their side stick to get off the ground. And they had, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but they were supposed to pull the stick back to a certain degree to make sure that they had enough runway and to have enough clearance by the end of the runway to safely operate. But what they found that a majority of flights and the 340-300 was operated mainly by Air France and Lufthansa, that most pilots on most of these flights weren't coming anywhere near the required pitch for the proper takeoff procedure. And even when they did, the published specs were nowhere near the climb rate that that uh, Airbus had estimated that these aircraft would take off on. So there were a number of cases where they took off from Bogota and they had very, very little clearance at the end of the runway over lights and um, antenna structures. Again, this kind of feels like one of these dumb luck situations where nothing bad happened, but Airbus was praising the fact that they had a lot of this archive data from these aircraft that they were able to look back at and see exactly how the pilots were manipulating the side stick and, and flying the aircraft compared to what they should have been doing, which helped them alter their recommended statistics, which actually led to them, I think the workaround to this was putting in shorter runway availability length information into the FMS and was actually available. So I guess the, the takeoff thrust ratio would be higher than was needed in the past. So they would get that better climb out rate. Right. So so the performance, initial performance targets were 3.1 degrees per second for rotation. What they were seeing were 1.9 degrees per second, or, or generally in an average of actually a little bit lower, 1.8 degrees per second with an average rotation time of about seven seconds. So what they've done is they've artificially shortened the runway in the computer performances. Lufthansa implemented a 280 meter reduction. Mm -hmm. And they've also, let's see, Air France did 200 meter reduction, and they've also required full thrust. And you have to reach 50% of thrust while on the brakes. So those went from, you know, kind of a, I guess, a lackadaisical departure to one of the more powerful, more powered, yeah, more powerful departures in, in the A340-300 lexicon. So that, that'll be 
it seems to be uh, what they're working for. Yeah. Um, so, so that'll be interesting. Really interesting that this came out now because the A340-300 is not a new aircraft. It's it, well on its way to its end of life. So this issue must have been going on for years and years at Bogota. Yeah. I mean, they said that they had studied over 600 departures. So, I mean, that'll be that'll be interesting to see, you know, how this type of study, you know, a single aircraft performance across multiple airlines can, can change, you know, safety recommendations. And and this is not a huge change. I mean, they're not saying you have to do, you know, something, there's no, you know, special procedure or, or anything like that, that, that seems there's no new learning. It's just changing some numbers in the computer and doing a couple different things to to increase the ability of the aircraft to leave the runway. Well, it's also um, training the pilots to pull the side stick back to the proper position to to get that higher uh, rotation rate. Right. So right, there is right. some pilot retraining needed. But they there, were, there's retraining, but not necessarily. There's nothing kind of out of the ordinary. Uh, yes. Yes. Oh, that, by that the way, the, uh, the pilots on board were rotating to the degree that they were because the 340-300 also has um, some tail strike issues. So they didn't want to rotate too much and potentially bring about a, a tail strike. So it was a very careful balance that they had to strike. Yeah. You know, like, like anything, it's all about balance. Last thing before we close out the show, and this has nothing to do with flight tracking or anything. It's just really cool. We're celebrating, reliving, following along with the, the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And a big group of folks put together this amazing website called ApolloInRealTime.org slash 11. And it is all of the Apollo 11 stuff, communications, trajectories, photos, audio from the capsule, from mission control, from radio reports, television, everything in real time as it happened 50 years ago. It's pretty crazy. It is absolutely incredible. And, and I highly recommend everyone check it out, especially since because we're recording on Wednesday, you'll be listening to this on Friday. So it'll be, let's see, it'll be into the fourth day of the mission by the time you're listening to this. So so we'll be getting close to walking on the moon. So that'll be cool. Definitely worth your time. We'll put a link to it in the show notes and we hope you'll enjoy that as much as we are. This has been episode 62 of AvTalk. It was a long one. It was, and, and I think this episode went in a number of unexpected directions, and, and I hope they were enjoyable to, to all who have listened thus far. I am Ian Pechenik, here as always with Jason Rubinowitz, and thank you for listening. Thank you.